Welcome to the latest episode of Take Back Our Schools. I am your co-host, Andrew Gutman. This is a very special episode for two reasons. Uh, One is we have a very special guest, but I'm going to hold off on introducing him and let my co-host introduce him in a moment. But I want to introduce my new co-host, Beth Feely, who was my guest a couple of episodes ago and is a friend, um, is taking over the co-host duty. So I am very excited to have her here for her first episode co-hosting Take Back Our Schools. Beth, you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Uh, Yes, and really happy to be here with you, Andrew. First and foremost, I am a mom of three kids who are in public schools. Uh, One has graduated, two are currently in. And several years ago, I started a parent group to speak up about some ideologically lopsided material about race and gender that was being pushed at my kids' high school. So through that effort of speaking out, I also became connected with the Woodson Center, which is led by civil rights movement veteran and neighborhood empowerment trailblazer, Robert Woodson. And I helped him launch its 1776 Unites initiative so that there uh, could be a more realistic and hopeful alternative out there um, to the identity politics grievance narrative that is so pervasive throughout our culture um, and including in our institutions such as schools. So I continue to lead a local civic group called Nutri Neighbors, and that carries on the work of that original parent group I started. Um, And we just really advocate on an ongoing basis for common sense in our schools and government. So I am very happy to be here joining you as co-host, and I look forward to, you know, exploring these topics of interest to parents as they figure out how to address issues in their schools, and then also talk about education topics uh, that affect the country at large um, through the perspective of parents. So thank you. Yeah, well, we are very happy to have you. Today, we have as our guest somebody who truly is a national treasure. Robert Woodson Sr. is the founder and president of the Woodson Center, based in Washington, D.C., which for the past 40 years has been the innovator in solving problems associated with poverty. The Woodson Center finds and resources effective programs that serve low-income people in some of the most troubled crime-ridden neighborhoods across the country. And his work and philosophy is captured in his book, Lessons from the Least of These, which I hope we can talk about today. And I knew of Mr. Woodson's work, and I connected with him several years ago over a deep concern and shared concern about this message of racial grievance and identity politics, that certain people are victims and others are oppressors um, purely by virtue of their skin color. So it was that shared concern, but it was also, I was always so impressed with his relentless search for solutions um, to address what truly ails our society. So it has been my honor to work with him for the past few years. And with that, welcome, Mr. Woodson. Pleased to be here, Beth. Pleased to join you. And thank you for coming on Take Back Our Schools. I wanted to start out and ask if you could please uh, talk a little bit about your younger years and particularly what prompted you to first join and then leave the civil rights movement, um, as well as the, what you've called the poverty industry, and, and then why you started the Woodson Center. Well, I was born in, during the Depression um, in a low-income, blue-collar, uh, segregated neighborhood in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, the street that I lived on literally was like a village, but 95% of all households had a man and a woman raising children. Uh, we had a segregated school, the Smith School, all black teachers. Um, third grade plays were held in the evening so that parents could attend. 
And in the back of the room, there was a large conference table with lunch pails piled on top. As so many parents came to the plays that were, were conducted, everybody could read <laughs> because you had to stand up and read out loud and no one wanted to be embarrassed. Um, and uh, elderly people could walk safely without fear of being assaulted. Um, throughout that period of time, um, uh, we, we had a peaceful neighborhood and kids were learning, families were together. And um, after, and my dad died when I was nine, leaving my mother with a fifth grade education and five children to raise. And, but he moved us out of that neighborhood into West Philadelphia that had just opened up for blacks. And, uh, but all of my closest friends were a year older than me. And uh, when they graduated from high school, I was unaffiliated. So I dropped out of high school, went into the military uh, in, the, in the 50s, joined the space program and finished high school and got out and worked my way through college. Um, my form of affirmative action was driving eight hours and going to school for six <laughs> and then driving me from there to work. That was my form of affirmative action. But the long and short, I got at, after I graduated, uh, I got involved in the civil rights movement and I became very disenchanted because a lot of people who were suffering and sacrifice uh, didn't walk through the doors of opportunity. I found that the civil rights movement was really about middle-class people. Um, Dr. King said, what good does it do to have the right to eat where you choose if you don't have the means to exercise that right? But there was little interest in the civil rights movement in the pre preparation of low-income people as a, to walk through those doors. And so I parted company with the movement as I saw it drift into what I call the race grievance industry. Many of the Black leaders um, became Democratic politicians. And this occurred at a time when the poverty program started. So the trillions of dollars that would pour in, 70 cents of every dollar didn't go to the poor, but to the professionals. And many of these black mayors directed monies to friends and colleagues. And so anyway, that's a long-winded way to saying, I found out that poor people became a commodity in America and it had a disastrous effect on the quality of their life and the content of their families. Were you the only one that found yourself dissatisfied with the civil rights movement? Were there many like you that saw the same things that there you were saw? Not, there were not many because everybody was in on the grab bag. Aha, uh -huh. okay. <laughs> I mean, the, the culture at the time had shifted away from, from a commitment to pursuing social justice. And the poverty program um, pretended to be about poverty alleviation. And so many of the uh, civil rights leaders, some of the people that people celebrate, they became partisan politicians. And they were the ones who were dispensing these monies to their friends. And so uh, there was a, on my wall, there's a, 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 new, a quote from a newspaper head, headline that says, poor Negroes did not benefit from the gains of the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. And so I sided with those who felt left out. 
And so my whole career has been um, um, challenging the whole civil rights uh, establishment and pushing back and demanding that, that equal, uh, upward mobility for the poor should be the emphasis of social justice, not more entitlements for middle-class people. And the original title for your organization was the National Center for Neighborhood Enterprise. So sounds like you had a little bit of a different idea of what actually would lead to upward mobility. Can you talk a little bit about how that idea formed and yeah. really what, what separates the now called Woodson Center um, from other efforts to alleviate poverty? Yeah, I believe that, that, that the principles that operate in our market economy should operate in our social economy. In our market economy, only 3% of the people are entrepreneurs, but they, they tend to generate 70% of all the jobs. And entrepreneurs tend to be C students, not A students. As I've said before, A students come back to universities and teach, C students in doubt. Because, because smart people have to have all the answers before they act. And when they act, the opportunity is gone. But C students like myself are able to act in the presence of our doubts and uncertainty that if we fail, then we come back and try it again. And so if so, it, no one's going to ask Bill Gates if he has a degree, because in our market economy, we reward outcomes. But in our social economy, we can waste millions if solutions are authored by well-credentialed, incompetent professionals. So certification is defined as qualification in the, in the social economy. And that's why the, uh, in our market economy, businesses start and then they, they, they fade, and then other businesses take. But in our social economy, the same institutions that were around 40 years ago are around today. So there's a, clearly a little bit of uh, risk taking that's involved with in most entrepreneurial efforts. And I would think the same applies to when you started the Woodson Center. Can you think of some, some of those early risks? Yeah. I, I, because right now, the reason that poverty, that we have, we've spent all this $22 trillion on programs to aid the poor, with 70 cents goes to people who provide service to the poor. So we've created a commodity Beth, out of the poor. That's why we can't reduce poverty in the presence of these large expenditures. We've created a commodity. But what we do at the Woodson Center by applying the market economy, we go into low-income neighborhoods, rather than looking for failure or doing failure studies, um, traditional people left and right, they go into these low-income neighborhoods and they want to know how many people are raising children or dropping out of school and jail on drugs. Well, I go into the 30% of the households that are people who are raising children that are not dropping out of jail or uh, of school in Georgia. They are the social entrepreneurs. And so what the Woodson Center has done is we go into these centers of excellence in these very troubled neighborhoods and we identify what are the qualities and content of leadership that enables people to thrive in the presence of difficult circumstances. And there's where you find the creativity. There's where you find uh, new and innovative ways of, of, and so what the center, the Woodson Center does is we, we, we capture these 
these nuggets of wisdom, these experiences they have. Is it easy to find those leaders? Are Absolutely. there many? They're, they're in every community. The, the Bradley Foundation in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, said they pay these consultants and said, the people you identify, Barbara, aren't here. So I said, well, just bring me in. I went in and I went to the barber shops and hairdressers and grocery stores. And I asked people, where do you, where do you turn to in times of trouble? The same four or five names kept coming up. So I knocked on the doors of those people and I said, why do people turn to you? Well, I do this and I do that. I said, well, who else does what you do? Well, Leslie Handy on the east side. I said, would you introduce me? Next thing you know, I got 30 people because they, they network just uh, and with one another. And so as a consequence, we were able to find that these were neighborhood leaders and the Bradley Foundation provided the funds for us to train them. And, and, and so the second year we found 30 more. And so to this day, the Bradley Foundation expends about $5 million every year investing in these neighborhood leaders that we introduced them to over 20 years ago and others. So we taught the foundation how to find these neighborhood healing agents. I meant it when I said that you were an innovator. I mean, no one else was doing this. Certainly the government-based solutions were not doing this. So it really did kind of uh, change the way that people looked at solving poverty. Um, and so it's definitely something that I found compelling uh, when I learned of your work. You know, um, one thing, well, two things. One, I wanted to talk about kind of what are these values that that kind of uh, help make these organizations run and that are the, uh, you know, behind some of these leaders. And I know you captured them in uh, your Woodson principles, which are in lessons from the least of these, which which you gleaned from from your neighborhood work over 40 years. If it's okay, I'd just like to read what those principles are. And sure. then maybe if you'd like to react to some of them or if there's a, mm -hmm. a favorite amongst them. So the principles are competence, integrity, transparency, resilience, witness, innovation, inspiration, agency, access, and grace. So there are 10. Um, are there some that, that you kind of think of more often than others or, or just, you know, you can kind of freeform it? Yeah, really, uh, maybe for, for people watching this, maybe perhaps I can give them an example of, sure. of how, how these principles operate. First of all, all of those principles are on the foundation that people have responsibility for their own future. They are not victims. In other words, someone said that I'm never defined by what happened to me in my past, but I'm defined by what I want to become in the future. And so that's the first attitude that these neighborhood healing agents have. They have a belief in their own ability to be agents of their own uplift. And they do not expect people to do more for them than they're willing to do for themselves. That's, so that's what you look for and this is what you cultivate. For example, let's take an education example. The Obama administration said that we, that there's disparity between black and brown and white kids in suspensions. 
okay, so what the Department of Education said, well, the cause of that must be racism. And so therefore the schools, the public school systems were required to reduce the disparity, not by changing the behavior of the children, but uh, assuming that the, that the disparity existed because of the existence of racism. And as a consequence, the schools were being judged by the ability to change these numbers. Well, they did by not suspending unruly kids and it created havoc in the schools. So suspensions went down, violence went up, education went down. <laughs> what we did at, in Milwaukee is we approached it from the Woodson perspective by going in and realizing that these children are being suspended because of their own misbehavior. So if you have a school of a thousand kids, they're, they're controlled by 10%. So we got some healing agents, some grassroots leaders, trained them that had the respect of these troubled kids and put them in the schools, seven of them in a school of a thousand kids. And they began to reach out to the troubled 10% and provide moral mentorship to them. And as a consequence of changing the behavior through wit by witnessing to them, say, I used to be what you are. I used to be a troublemaker, but now I'm a peacekeeper. And so he gets witnessed to by them. And as a consequence, we were able to dramatically reduce the suspension rates, improve the, uh, reduce violence in the schools, the grades went up, Suspensions went down, and we have about nine schools in Milwaukee that has our violence intervention program, and it's been operating for over 17 years. So there's an example, Beth, of how we take a principle, how we apply that principle, and this is what the outcome that it produces. Are these public schools? Yes, and they're public schools. And are they receptive to you, the Woodson Center, coming in and, and doing this? You know, we, we always hear the teachers unions, they, they, you know, they don't want other people stepping on their toes for all sorts of reasons. So are they receptive to when you come in with programs like this? They're see, this is where, this is how you can provoke change. We went to the parents and we went to the principals and, and because the teachers were frightened in these schools. So when we put into, introduced our intervention, the school violence went down, teachers felt safe. <laughs> and so we made them an offer that they couldn't refuse. <laughs> and that is we demonstrated that these principles and values that we hold dear have the consequence of making the schools safer. And in fact, some teachers if a, if a classroom became unruly, they would call our violence-free zone office and one of our young youth advisors would come and sit in the back of the room and order was restored. So we demonstrated by our actions, the utility of embracing these. So when we came before the school board for, for our budget hearing, we had 20 witnesses, the district attorney, parents, children, police, everybody. So resistance on the school board was non-existent because we demonstrated by our actions 
the value that this intervention, intervention added and improved the schools. So that was our strategy. And to oppose it, such a, a solution that also sounds like it unified people that it would, you'd be the outlier. So it's just, it's, it's so great. And, you know, and here's the best thing you actually solved a problem. It wasn't like posturing. This was actually resulting in better grades, peaceful classrooms, everybody wins. And it just, it's, um, it's amazing. And that, and this has been around for a while and boy, it could be used in so many other so many other um, settings. So it's well. That's it's a good question. Different. I mean, how how could this be scaled? How you know, th- this is, sounds like this is something that could be in every school in America, or should be, or at least in a lot of them. I mean, what what's the impediment to scaling this in a much larger way? Elitism. <laughs> okay. The assumption is that untutored people are unwise, uncredentialed, and therefore. Uh, they will be ineffective. So elitism is what we that we that we fight against primarily. But I can tell you what what the reason that it is embedded in Milwaukee is because we had we made a cost benefit case. I had a principal in Washington D.C. where we had the program. He said every week a child is taken to the hospital. In a, to because of a fight, and it cost the taxpayers five thousand dollars to go into the ICU. He said, "Ever since your program has been here, we haven't had one student transported to the hospital." Wow! That's so you can just t- look at the numbers. It cost them six thousand dollars to expel a student. Expulsions are down forty percent. The police said that car thefts. In the, in the contiguous neighborhood is down 40% in every school where we had this program. So we made a, a, a cost-benefit case for investing in this program. But the biggest barrier, again, is elitism, is this fundamental disbelief that cures and solutions can come from untutored sources. Not to mention that if there, you know, some people are employed to take care of problems. So if there are fewer problems, then they're going to not have a job. And so <laughs> I would imagine that there could be also a little institutional resistance, um, you know, in that regard, which is unbelievable. However, um, it's just amazing work. So this is, you know, this is the traditional work of the Woodson Center. Our programs, this is but one example, um, and there are thousands. And so, you know, this work is, is done in service of people who are, quote unquote, on the margins, who are um, struggling, who would like more opportunity in life, um, and it's transformational. So fast forward and um, coming into about five years ago and uh, turning it more towards the 1776 Unites initiative, you know, what, what made you want to speak out? And I guess, what, what was it that kind of prompted you um, to kind of choose this time and, and, and this issue to basically use your credibility? You had, you know, you're, you're a, a legend in, in many circles. Um, why, why 1776 Unites? Well, you know, because in, in uh, August uh, 2019, when the New York Times, under, under the leadership of journalist Hannah Nicole Jones, published 1619, it was really 
a series of essays by black uh, journalists that really attacked the very foundational values of our nation and said America was founded as a slaveocracy and America's real birthday should be 1690 when the first 20 African slaves arrived. And, and as a consequence of this, the fact that, that the um, half of the founders were slave owners, therefore the constitution and the declaration of independence was conceived in contradiction in hypocrisy and therefore the document and the principles are therefore flawed. Well, we, and since the, the left was using the black experience as the bludgeon against the nation, we felt that the messengers, the counter message should also come from blacks. And so we brought together a coalition of, of black scholars, and activists, and not all conservative, but only, but those, and we wanted to offer not a, a, an alternative argument, but a current, an alternative narrative. We, because I think the country is tired of gladiatorial combat masquerading as political debate. And Americans want to be inspired <clears throat> to improve. So we offered a series of essays that that um, debunked the whole notion that the black suffering in America, many of the, in the country is, is the legacy of slavery and, and Jim Crow. So we published a series of essays debunking that false premise by uh, offering inspirational and aspirational essays that document the fact that when whites were at their worst, blacks were at their best. And so we developed school curriculum from this. We had about 36,000 downloads. The book, Red, White, and Black, uh, uh, sold out in two weeks. So we think that we were responding to a thirst in the, uh, in, in, in the American public for fact-based truths that is inspirational and, and, and defends those values because black America was able to survive slavery and discrimination, not as a result of the American values, but as a consequence of the embrace of these values of self-determination of faith mm -hmm. and family, of the, the, the importance of redemption this is the foundation upon which this blacks were able to survive. I'm curious about something. I remember I, I'm a New York Times. I'm embarrassed to say I'm a New York Times reader for 25 years. I don't know why I still read it. But I remember reading when that 1619 project came out as a layperson, not familiar with it. It was a new thesis, this thesis that America is systemically racist, that slavery is built in to the founding principles. Was that a new argument to you? Is that something you had heard? Is that something that, that you had heard in the civil rights movement in the 60s? Or is that something that really was invented much more recently? No, this, was, this is a recent invention. In the civil rights movement, there was uh, aggressive and rigorous debate within the movement as to the course forward. But the debate was never over the foundational principles we, we sought to demand that America live up to its ideals. 
but the ideals themselves were never questioned. But so, so this introduced a whole different dynamic. I mean, uh, someone said that democracy and capitalism are but empty, empty vessels into which we pour our values as a nation. The contra if I sign a contract with you, that contract is only as good as the foundation of trust that exists between us. If you are dishonest, you don't, you're sure you'll sign a contract and steal from me anyway. <laughs> right. But it's those values, enduring values that, that defines the exchange between citizens. Mm -hmm. And so, but this is the first time that the values themselves were under attack. And so that's why we felt compelled to respond. And I guess, what, what would you say, I guess, to Nicole Hannah-Jones or Ibram Kendi or any number of new um, intellects that are proponents of this type of worldview that seems to be hostile to the founding values of the country? Is there something that, if you could sit down and, and have a chat, like that, that you'd want to say to them? I would just ask him a simple question. Tell me what problems it solves. I would identify challenges. You've got a child being shot every five minutes in America. More blacks were killed by other blacks in one year than were lynched in 40 years by the Klan. And that, and that condition is getting worse. And so I would ask them, tell me how white, making white people less racist will make black people more safe <laughs> or more prosperous. So these are the kind of, in fact, I had a chance to um, debate Hawk Newman from the Black, uh, uh, black Lives Matter New York representatives for an hour on C-SPAN. And, and he stumbled because he could not address these questions. So, so what I do is con compel them to, to, to respond to circumstances, not Bob Woodson's argument. So a lot of this 1776 Unites curriculum tells stories that we don't hear otherwise, that children don't hear otherwise, um, black success stories through American history. Who is this? Who is this? What is this curriculum for? Is it for black children? Is it for no, all children? Who would you like it to? It's for everybody. everybody. It, it extols the virtues of American values by giving examples from the black experience, but for others as well. In other words, it is important for all children to understand that no one should be judged by a birth defect. <laughs> nor should any of us be judged by the worst of what we used to be. And so that since the left was using the black community as a bludgeon, we thought we should use the black experience as an example of how people triumph in the presence of adversity. Your, your handicap or your disability may have been being born during segregation. But there are the very fact that there are white children 
from two parent households in Silicon Valley who are committing suicide at six times the national rate. Their problem isn't white supremacy. And so perhaps if, if they can hear about black people not only surviving but thriving under difficult circumstances, maybe there are lessons that they can draw from the black experience to help them with the crisis of self-confidence in their own context. Clearly a running thread through the curriculum stories that we tell, and I do, I do work on these, um, is just this notion of resilience and achievement against the odds and, and they are hopeful. And they also talk about some of the more difficult and shameful periods in our past. I don't think we shy away from that. Um, we may get accused of that, but I don't think that's, well, that's, that's true. I mean, that's an interesting point, right? Because a lot of us sort of in this movement get, you know, the, the, call it right, the anti-CRT movement or anti, whatever you want to call it, right? That, well, you just don't want to teach history, right? You don't want to teach slavery. You don't want to teach. I mean, that's such nonsense. Well, but right. let me say, let me just say that some of that is true in the sense that it is important for some conservatives to acknowledge that 1619 did get it right when it said that we do not, we have not really taught slavery in uh, the way we should have. For instance, I found out in the state of Virginia in 1970, all history books had to be, uh, be, be authorized by the state and you can only buy the ones. Well, slavery for 20 years was portrayed in these history books as a benign institution and that the people there were happy. And, and so, but, and that's revisionist history, but you don't replace revisionist history with revisionist history. <laughs> but I think it disarms your opponent when you acknowledge their argument that it is, has not been told in its entirety and that needs to be corrected. True, not and not only the the terrible chapters, which I agree, and I was I was very you know surprised and disheartened to to hear that. Although you know I think um, you know people made terrible decisions in the past, and it's happened throughout our past. Um, but you know also what struck me about these stories is that so many of them were not known. So the inspirational parts. So so many of the people that you have talked about um, for years uh, have never been kind of part of this, uh, of a history curriculum. And I'm wondering if you've got any thoughts as to why, like why are people, why, why isn't, or Biddy Mason or Elijah McCoy and the Rosenwald schools and Robert Smalls, many kids don't know about those. Many adults don't know about these figures. And why do you think that is? I think Bill Bennett really put his finger on it many years ago when he says, when liberals see black people uh, and poor people, they see a sea of victims and people on the right see aliens. <laughs> so you got a patronizing, dismissive attitude on one side and indifference on the other side. And so that's why nobody recognizes that there are 20 plus blacks who are born slaves who died millionaires. One of them in Missouri was the richest man in the state. Not the richest black man, but the richest man in the state. He started 
life as a slave and a barber and invested in the railroads, insurance, owned 14 homes, had a net worth of about $250,000 back in 1857. So these are the important stories uh, to be told. Absolutely. I mean, and, and as you pointed out earlier in answering Andrew's questions, these stories are for, are for all, all children. Um, it's not targeted at, at one or the other. Um, these, should be, these should be present in curriculum. And especially if a school is teaching a 1619 project or some other type of material that this is really designed to be a supplement to that or to a counterpoint um, to that. And so, um, you know, along those lines, this most people listening are, are uh, to this podcast are parents, and you know some parents that certainly some that I come across, um, they they think that the sixteen nineteen project is helpful, uh, that institutional racism is real, that uh, what we know as our you know DEI diversity equity and inclusion trainings and other types of these ideological uh, types of interventions are actually helpful. And what would your, for those who think that they're helpful, what would you want to say to them? Helpful to whom? You know, I think you got to, it's important to ask people, as I do all the time, give me an example. Tell me one job in America that a black person cannot hold. You know, tell me one place in America where a black cannot live. (laughs) Did you think, I'm going to, sorry to interrupt, on that point. We had a black president, yeah. Barack Obama, and that was that was, in in many ways, a uniting election, and it and there was be. such optimism from that, and now we seem to have gone you know so far the other way, in terms of polarization, in terms of the view of race relations. Were you optimistic when that happened? Were you disappointed after that, or did you? I mean. You know, did, did that sort of change your outlook at all to see, a, to see a, you know, Barack Obama elected president and then see sort of things go the wrong way after there was such optimism? I was encouraged, but I also know that he did not have a program and that he was going to become a race instead of a, a racial uniter. He was going to become a divider. The, 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 he had an I was optimistic for about one month. Until okay. he made the speech about black men stepping up and being responsible fathers, and he was attacked by Jesse Jackson and um, and he retreated never again to talk about moral competence in the black community. So, and ever since then, and then when Trayvon Martin came along, he said, my son could have looked like that. I knew that he was going to be worse for the country. And he has made conditions worse because he was in a position to, to, to move us to post-racialism. But, uh, you know, he, he refused to, to do that. Especially the last two years, as I recall, of his presidency is when the wheels really started either coming off or perhaps it was more true colors were being shown. Um, And that's when you got a lot of this, the Dear Colleague letters about the racial discipline policy and a lot of the Title IX um, letters that about college campuses. So um, it's a shame. But um, at any rate, you know, then politics moves on. And so now we're, um, now we're here. And I guess what, um, 
one of the way, one of the ways we like to end the podcast is to just ask the question, what can parents do? Um, what can parents do in terms of, of getting balance into their schools, into learning true black history, into um, hopefully improving uh, and maybe taking us beyond some of the places that we've been recently as it relates to race? Well, first of all, I think parents have got to um, put truth above race. You've got to just summon the courage. In fact, I, Beth, I'm thinking about uh, uh, becoming a certified racial exorcist. <laughs> Another line of business. <laughs> yeah, that's a new line of business. I'm going to be self-proclaimed a, a racial exorcist so I can tell all white parents, racism has been exorcised out of your life. Get rid of the guilt, you know, go ahead and, and pursue the truth. No, but I think parents have got to put the, the welfare of their children about their concern about so-called social justice. And, and stand up and fight for your children and, and push back against this racial narrative and, and, uh, and, and place the interests of your children against your, inf- your interest in being, being accepted. So I was gonna, I was gonna, I was gonna make that the, have Beth ask the last question, but I have to follow up. Are you optimistic? Are you pessimistic from I, your I lifelong doing this? You know, where do you-, I, where do you- I am optimistic because I tell people 80% of my closest friends have letters in front of their names, they're X something. And they are optimistic. Fortunately, they are not woke. (laughs) They're not confused about their pronouns. (laughs) And and so um, because I spend a lot of my time among low-income people, I think they are our new patriots and they are going to be the salvation of this nation. Well, on that, Bob, thank you very much uh, for coming on and for being who you are and your life's work. And you are just a true blessing to the country. uh, And I am just really grateful to know you. (laughs) Well, I enjoyed it. All the best to you. Thank you very much. Thanks. So that that was a terrific conversation. I mean, it was. I mean, I know you know Bob well, obviously, yes. and worked with him for a long time. This is sort of I've seen him on TV, I've seen him on podcasts, but this is my first, you know, interaction with him. But a re, yeah, like you said, a, a real treasure. Mm-hmm. You know, I knew of his work um, from a group that I was involved with, and I, I used to write uh, policy read well, policy briefs um, as discussion materials, and one of them covered the topic of poverty and it featured his work and his voice was just so um, so genuine and authentic, so focused upon people and improving their lives. It just was um, it was it was so refreshing to see somebody who had a a an approach that worked. B that was nuanced. Um, you know, there's so much that you can look up about him and the traditional work of the Woodson Center. Uh, one of the more interesting um, things that came across my, you know, the, across the transom as I was learning about him years ago was that he doesn't consider people in poverty as this one block. There are people in poverty for different reasons. He had four categories. And it was, you know, it was just kind of having that thoughtful approach that was based also in really practical solutions that was so compelling. And Every one of them was so based upon principles that I, you know, I just knew that we shared. And so when I had reached out to him, um, when we were, you know, 
enduring what we are encountering, what at my kid's high school, kind of what drew me into this world. Um, I just, I knew that it was on a really basic level, just not going to jive with them. And sure enough, it didn't. And um, so he has, he has so much to teach the country and, you know, and he's really a patriot. I mean, I think if you look at the, what the founding principles and ideas and, and virtues of this country are what are behind the work that he does. And so I think it's, um, so it's no surprise that he does find attacks on our, our history and the character of our country. Like he takes it personally um, and acted accordingly. Yeah. Well, I mean, the scary thing, I mean, the, one of the many scary things is that to say you're a patriot of this country, to say you believe in America, to say you believe in the founding principles, say that and you're automatically branded a right-wing conservative or a Republican. I mean, I mean, that's sort of the world, this polarized world that we live in, which is frightening in addition to this racial identity politics. It is. You know, I mean, and I honestly, like I said, patriot, and I thought, ooh, you know, um, it's and it's such a shame because um, people like him. I mean, he served in the military. He lived through segregation. He has seen, he has seen true oppression. He has experienced it yeah. firsthand. Um, his choice is still that this country is not perfect, but it's good, and it keeps getting better. Um, you know, sure, we take steps back sometimes and steps forward, but it really that the basic ideas behind it are good. They are worth arguing for. They are worth upholding. And so it is really sad that we're at that place. So I try not to get caught in that trap as much as I can. Um, but, but you know, we are, we're at a cultural moment where that's common and, and I'd like I'd like it to be less common. And I'd also like for us to just be able to say to somebody, you know, I, I disagree. You know, I think that I think that my position is different than yours. And I just don't think you have to have ad hominem attacks. And I don't think we have to be, you know, we have to let go of words that once meant something good just because, you know, the cultural moment leads us to do that. So, well, in the age of social media, that's easier said than done. Unfortunately, I know. Oh. it's so hard. We, I mean, I've said this in, in, in a lot of times, you know, democracy doesn't work if you can't have conversations with each other, if you can't debate these issues. And we're in this world where on almost every important issue, we can't have these debates. No. And everything that you say gets scrutinized because it lives forever. And so there's that. I mean, it used to be that you could have a conversation and then it stayed there and then you move on. So I do think that there's a, you know, there's a psychological change in terms of how we communicate um, and that, and that dimension of it that I think also affects, you know, it's probably contributed to the polarization because you can look back and you can find out exactly what so-and-so said, you know, last month and then, you know, attack it. So, um, yeah, but you know, it is, but it, you can't pretend it's not happening. Um, but I think you can choose to follow people and read up on people and, um, you know, become familiar with people like Bob, um, and like so many others who are doing inspiring work. Well, not enough. No. <laughs> so many, but clearly well, not enough. We clearly need a lot more people like him. Oh, we absolutely do. That was when I first started uh, working with him. That was, that was really my charge is I, I wanted to, bring his message to, you know, my spheres of influence and, you know, as limited as they were, but then also just um, in any way that I could, because I really found, you know, I think the work that that organization is doing is really what will heal this country. Um, and I really, and, and I, and I just think that we all can benefit um, from, from that type, from knowing about him, but also, you know, reading about, if you read the Woodson principles, um, those principles can apply to anyone. Um, and they are, you know, they're rooted in 
a solid foundation and it's something that I just think can bless um, anyone who comes across it. So I would commend that to book to people um, as well as Red, White, and Black, which is the book of essays from 1776 Unites. And um, you can find out, you know, more about the Woodson Center and 1776 Unites at their websites, which is woodsoncenter.org and 1776unites.com. Perfect. And I hope people do go to those sites because there's terrific information. The 1776 Unites curriculum is wonderful. So on that note, let's wrap this up. You have fun? You're going to come back again and do this I again? I did. Okay. I, I sure did. Uh, okay. I enjoyed it. Yeah. I'm learning how to use this mic. It's great. And no, okay. I really enjoyed it. Uh, these are these are great conversations and I appreciate um, you know just having a resource out there that hopefully parents can use. So yeah. thank you. So, and to all our listeners, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Bob Woodson. We will be back soon for another interesting conversation. If you like us, uh, please rate us, five-star review, wherever you like to listen to your podcasts and share us. We hope you will do that. And we will talk to you soon on Take Back Our Schools. Ricochet. Join the conversation.